0: Well, if you don't know the main uh, message of the book of Haggai, that's okay. (laughs) Um, I freely acknowledge that Haggai is perhaps a a strange choice for uh, a visiting preacher to choose. So uh, while you turn there to page 791, let me set the stage for what we're going to read. Uh, The year is 520 B.C. Uh, God's people have just spent 70 years in exile far from their homeland, Uh, in the city of Babylon. But at long last, God's people are finally permitted to go home, Uh, but only a tiny remnant returns. And when they arrive back then in Jerusalem, the city is like an apocalyptic wasteland. Think of some of the pictures in the news from Ukraine, for example. There's little left of Jerusalem but rubble, and they literally had to pick up the, the pieces of their lives. Uh, on a positive note, one of the first things they begin to rebuild is the temple. All right? But very quickly, they run into opposition from, from the neighboring countries around them and from the Persian Empire itself. Uh, and so they say, what's the point? You know, obeying God shouldn't be this hard. So they take the path of least resistance and, and they quit. They, they give up trying to rebuild God's house. Instead, they start rebuilding their own houses instead. Fifteen years later, the temple is still lying in ruins. And this is then when the prophet Haggai picks up his story. Um, He stirs them to restart the project of building the temple. But again, it's not long before things bog down. It's only been about a month or so into this. And that's then where Haggai 2 picks up. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 9. So hear hear the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we do thank you that again, we get the opportunity this this day, this Lord's day, to hear from you in your word. We thank you that even though it was written thousands of years ago, that through it, you still speak to us, your people. Father, we humble ourselves before you recognizing that we are nothing we are weak we are but dust and yet you lord are the lord of hosts the almighty true all-powerful eternal god who made all things and who made us and who despite our sin loves us father please speak to us now encourage us strengthen us strengthen the, the work of our hands lord we pray that we would see christ let pray this in his name. Amen. Expectations can be dangerous things. Uh, when a pastor does premarital counseling, this is one of the things that we have to talk about in that as two people uh, decide and plan about spending their lives together. Um, what are you expecting of each other? What do you expect married life to be like, and it can be quite comical to listen to what people expect of one another. For example, I didn't realize that dinner wouldn't always be ready and hot and on the table at 6 p.m. when I come walking in the door. Surprise, you know? Um, so, this do- doesn't just apply, though, to couples. Every person in this room has expectations of what they think life should be like. And sometimes those expectations are unrealistic. Now, I I hate to say it, but Christians aren't immune to this either. In fact, there are several common expectations that we, we often have about what it looks like to live and work as a follower of Christ that simply aren't true. COULD NEVER BE TRUE, AND WE FIND ONE OF THOSE HERE IN THIS PASSAGE THIS EVENING. AND THE FAULTY EXPECTATION IS THIS, MY EFFORTS SHOULD ALWAYS SUCCEED IF THEY ARE DONE FOR GOD. MY EFFORTS SHOULD ALWAYS SUCCEED IF THEY ARE DONE FOR GOD. OR YOU COULD THINK OF IT THIS WAY, IF I AM OBEDIENT TO GOD, I DESERVE TO BE BLESSED. But as the Jews began rebuilding the temple, they find out the hard way that's not always the case. Uh, what they learned, and what we need to learn too, is that your labor for the Lord what it will sometimes seem pathetic, it will sometimes seem pointless, but God promises to be with you in your weakness and to use your Baltering, bumbling, stumbling steps of obedience to him for his glory. He will glorify himself through your humble acts of obedience to the callings that he's placed upon you. So we're going to walk through this passage this evening and we're going to look at three Ps, three Ps. First, problem. Second, presence. And third, promise. So the problem presence, and then promise. First, the problem. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The 21st day of the month was the last day of the Jewish festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, or, or booths, up. you may be up, all right. Is it not on? Now it's on. <laughs> all right, where were we? So the 21st day of the seventh month, sorry, we should have done a sound check before that, um, was the last day in the Jewish festival of tabernacles or booths. Um, The Jews would have gathered in the courtyard of the temple and made homemade shelters in which they lived uh, during that week to celebrate how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But there's no celebration at this festival Work on the temple had begun, and the temple is starting to take shape. It's a good thing. Progress has been made. But this progress actually turned out to be a painful thing, especially to the older generation, because they had seen Solomon's temple before it had been destroyed. It quickly became obvious that this second temple could never match in in grandeur and splendor and glory Uh, that temple that had come before the exile, before Jerusalem fell. And they're crippled by nostalgia, nostalgia about a golden age. Uh, And it works like poison, infecting their mood. And so after only a month on the job, the people are thinking of quitting again. But discouragement for the Jews doesn't just come from, from looking to the past. It also comes from looking ahead to the future as well. Uh, in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and especially Ezekiel, they would have read that God had promised that there would be a majestic new temple that would be built, grander and more glorious even than Solomon's. But as they lay the foundation stones and begin to build the walls they realize that this is not that. This is not that. And if this is not that, friends, then why should we be building this at all? Why should we keep going? There's no way this is going to be glorious and grand. John Calvin says it's as if Satan is whispering discouragement in the ears of the Jews And compared to that glorious temple to be, Calvin says, it's like they were building a shed. It's like they were building a shed. Now, this sense of disappointment is heightened even more if we consider not just the past and not just the future, but also the vertical dimension as well. Because what's the point of a temple? What's the point of a temple? a temple is a place where God can dwell in the midst of his people. We see this when the tabernacle was completed in Exodus chapter 40. The cloud of God's glory moved over it and descended upon it and filled it with glory. The same thing happens in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon finished building that grand and glorious temple. Again, the glory of God as a cloud, a brilliant flaming cloud, comes down and fills the temple so that no one can go in or enter it. But that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen as they rebuild. It doesn't happen when they finish either. God's Spirit is never recorded as filling this temple. So when they finish, nothing happens. You can only imagine what must be going on in their hearts. They've responded to the summons of Haggai in chapter 1 with obedience, risking the wrath of their neighbors and maybe even the Persian Empire itself. Remember, Jerusalem at this time is a city without walls. There is no way for them to defend themselves. And they've chosen to focus their efforts on rebuilding on the temple rather than on the walls. And so they're defenseless. They're helpless if their enemies decide to attack, they've made themselves vulnerable at tangible cost by focusing in obedience on what God had told them to do, rebuild the temple. They've put everything on the line. But despite the fact that they obey God, it seems like they've failed. It's empty. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. I know the word failure is anathema in St. Andrews. Ever did excel, right? This is our motto. There are areas, though, friends, where if we're honest, we've felt this way too. I've tried to obey God, and it doesn't seem like it's done anything. Is this worth it? Is the cost worth it? Life doesn't seem to have worked out as planned. Your sweat and tears and even your prayers seem to result in pitifully little return. Not to be a downer, but especially for you who are younger in here, perhaps in uni, about to head off into life, there are going to be disappointing seasons of life. Seasons that seem fruitless, Seasons that seem dry and vanity. Ecclesiastes comes to mind here. Seasons where you wonder, what was the point of that? Maybe it's struggling for years with a difficult marriage or a thankless job where you're, you're helping someone. Perhaps you're in the medical industry or perhaps you work for a charity and, and, and you're, you're giving it your all. You feel like God has put you here for a reason, it doesn't seem to be doing anything. You're not, uh, your work is not appreciated. It seems like it's thankless. It's empty. It's fruitless. Perhaps you're training for ministry or thinking about ministry here. We, I know we have a lot of those here who are training or thinking about ministry. Friends, the, the ministry is a thankless job. <laughs> Very often it comes at great personal cost. And you exert yourself And you empty yourself. You pour out yourself, like Paul says, as a drink offering. And you wonder sometimes, is it worth it? This person, that person doesn't seem to be changing despite the time I've invested in them. Despite the fact I care about them. I give it my all. Is it in vain? That leads us to our our second point. God responds to our problem with his presence in verses 4 and 5. Look at me at verses 4 and 5. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Note what God doesn't say here. He doesn't say, keep working, because I know deep down you can turn this into a success story. He doesn't say, keep working, because I'm going to pull a miracle out of my hat, and in the end you will be uh, victorious or triumphant and surprise everyone. Rather, what does he say? He says, work. Why? For I am with you. For I am with you. That principle is ultimately far more important, friends, than your success or your failure. God doesn't promise that you will not fail. And you will fail sometimes. God doesn't promise that his people will not fail. Rather, he promises he will not abandon them even if they fail. I will be with you. That's a massive difference. How can we be sure that he's with us? Because even though the Spirit of God would never fill this temple with glory and majesty, where does he say the Spirit remains? My Spirit remains with you. It remains you with you. He remains with you in your midst, which is a fascinating, fascinating promise pre-Pentecost before the Spirit is poured out. Here, he says, the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is in your midst. Just as the Spirit moved with the people in the wilderness, guiding them on their way to the promised land, so he promises them again, my Spirit is with you, you may not be able to see him. But he is here, and he will never leave you. He will preserve you and protect you, and that means you don't have to be afraid, and that means your labor, (laughs) weak and fruitless as it may seem, is not in vain. What do you fear most? What do you fear most? Maybe, despite your best efforts, in these coming weeks, or this week, maybe tomorrow, even, I don't know. You do poorly on your exams. It might mean that despite your best efforts, your child grows up to reject the faith. It might mean a whole host of things. You can personalize it to your own situation. But whether you succeed or whether you fail, God will not leave you or forsake you. And friends, the best thing about this promise is that while you may fail, he never will. He will be faithful to his covenant promise that he is your God and you are his people. You belong to him and he will never let you go. And that means even in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, you can, as he says here, be strong. Be strong for I am with you. In your weakness, his power is made known. God will accomplish his purposes, friends. Not one of them will fall to the ground. No labor for his sake will ultimately be in vain because it's his labor that it's dependent on and his labor is never in vain. And that means, friends, that though you may fail, ultimately in God's economy, you've done what he's asked. He is faithful. He will never let you go. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So in a sort of end run, although I realize that's an American illustration. Oh, 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 well. Uh, In a way we don't expect. Um, This faulty expectation actually does come to be true, just not necessarily in the way we would expect. Meditate with me on what this means practically, because this not only redefines failure, it also redefines what success looks like, too. God has given you a number of callings, or perhaps, you know, to use an older theological word vocations, right? Vocations in your life. You might be a spouse, you might be a parent, you might be a child, you might be a student, you might be a teacher, a musician, an artist, a CEO. Success in these areas doesn't necessarily mean massive fruitfulness or revival or genius or producing masterpieces. Success, as Haggai defines it here, means trusting God, and being faithful to his calling on your life. This doesn't mean we're called to mediocrity. This isn't an excuse for not doing our best. But it means that despite doing our best, what he calls us to is faithfulness. Whether we succeed whether we fail in these callings of ours. And that also means that even if you die, as we all will, if the Lord doesn't come back, and everything that you do crumbles into dust and is forgotten, lost in the dust of history. That doesn't mean that you are, therefore, a failure, despite what our society tells us. Earn immortality for yourself. Well, who cares? Everything you do, even the most insignificant things, changing nappies, comes to mind. All of that matters in God's economy because God has put you there to do it. You are His tools, instruments in His hands, uh, in your callings. He's called you simply to be faithful to Him. Eugene Peterson says Compared with the great prophets who preached repentance and salvation, Haggai's message doesn't sound very spiritual. But in God's economy, it's perhaps unwise to rank our assigned work as either more or less spiritual. Every act of obedience to God, in other words, is significant because it's done for God. And that then connects how God will bring the story of the temple to completion. And here's the third point, the promise. This is what Haggai gets at in verses 6 through 9. Look with verses, at verses 6 through 9 with me. The laborers working on the temple were downcast because it was so small and insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. And yet what God is promising here is that that glory that would fill this temple would far exceed that of Solomon's temple. There's a bit of wordplay here probably with the word glory. Uh, in verse 7. On the one hand, it's referring to the the treasures of the nations that are going to come in, the gold and the silver that flowed in the streets of Solomon's temple would be like nothing compared to this greater glory of what would fill this temple, the wealth of God's temple in the future. But also, because of the wider context, it's almost assuredly referring uh, as well to that glory cloud of God filling the tabernacle, filling the, this temple like the tabernacle and Solomon's temple as well. God is promising that what the laborers longed for would one day come true. It's going to come true. His glory would fill the temple. And then we have to ask the question, well, when does this happen? When does this take place? When would God's people see the glory of the Lord filling the temple? When would the riches of the nations pour in? Well, we know ultimately this happens at the last day. It happens when, as Hebrews 12 talks about, God shakes the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, uh, in a mighty act of judgment when all things are laid bare before God. On that day, Isaiah 60, verse 5, and 61, verse 6, speak of the treasures of the nations pouring in to the city of God. And Revelation 21, you'll remember, it portrays that new heavenly Jerusalem as having streets paved with gold uh, and, and walls of jewels vastly more than the tribute received by Jerusalem in Solomon's day. And the glory of God there, we're told, dwells in the midst of God's people. But do you know what's missing in that new Jerusalem? A temple. There is no temple in that city. Why? Well, it's because this weak and lowly temple that they are building in Haggai's day pointed forward to a weak and lowly person who, despite his appearance, was and is the true temple. Of God, remember that this message from Haggai, uh, in chapter two, verse one, we're told it happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. Over five hundred years later, John one verse fourteen describes this weak and lowly person as the Word who became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. And despite being born in a stable, he received a foretaste of the treasures of the nations when the Magi came and bowed down before him and offered him their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was Jesus in John 2 who told the priests, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Talking about the temple of his body and his coming resurrection. It was Jesus who in John 7, verse 38, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this same day, he stood up in the temple and he spoke about the Spirit being poured out upon his people that rivers of flowing water would issue from them. And when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the true heir of David, the true Messiah King and our great high priest, the first place he went, was this same temple. Driving out the money changers, preparing the temple for the great sacrifice, the sacrifice of his body. And in in the greatest irony of all, it was when he was most weak, most vulnerable, helpless, nailed to the cross, naked, scorned for all to see, It was right then, when it seemed like he had failed, friends, when it seemed like his labor was in vain, that God triumphed over sin and Satan and hell. In his weakness, he triumphed. And he's victorious for you and for me, so we can stand before God unashamed, unafraid, robed in the righteousness of our Savior and King. In him we have peace with God because when his body was broken on the cross, the veil of this temple would be torn in two, symbolizing that we have access to God. His presence is with us and will never leave us and never forsake us. He will no longer be separated from us. Friends, his labor was not in vain. And that means that your labor is not in vain either. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, that he is our victory, that in his weakness he is exalted, that in his death he triumphed, We thank you that in him, and in him alone, we can come before you. We can call upon you as Father, and that our labor will never be in vain, even though it is weak, even though it is frail, even though we sin, and we sin so often. We thank you that you preserve us, that you provide for us, that you care for us, Lord. We pray that you would be pleased to use our, our feel and frable efforts for your glory and ultimately for our joy as well. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We're going to uh, stand.